0: Good morning guys, Uh, welcome, so glad you guys are here. If this is your first time, welcome. My name is Josiah. Um, Welcome to the exchange. I'd love to say what's up and meet you after in case this is your first time. Hopefully you met some friendly people today. Uh, We are taking the year to go through the gospel of Mark, and we're not in a rush. We're taking our time, but we're in Mark chapter 6. So if you would, turn to Mark chapter 6. We'll be in verse 30. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible, so you can follow along. But Mark chapter 6, verse 30 is where we'll be at. That's not some of those Bibles if you need it. Mark chapter 6, a quick, quick, quick review. Gospel of Mark, first gospel written, first gospel penned. Mark, who spent time with Peter, goes, let me write down the story of Jesus. Mark created a whole new genre of writing called gospel. And so Mark is the first one to write this. Uh, This is the earliest book written, and it's the shortest book. And Mark kind of gets to the point. And if you're with us, two weeks ago, we started Mark chapter 6. And two weeks ago, Jesus goes back to his home. He goes home to Nazareth. And in Nazareth, he says it could not do any miracles or work there because of their unbelief. So Jesus goes to Nazareth. He's rejected by his own. He's rejected by his own people. And it says that him and his disciples went to the surrounding cities because of that. So two weeks ago, we looked at how the disciples were empowered. They did many miracles and signs and healings. They're doing ministry. It's an awesome time. That was two weeks ago. Last week, the story's interrupted. We've talked about this. Mark calls this, or we call this the sandwich technique. Mark begins with one story, introduces another story, and then here this week, we're going to be reintroduced to the first story. So last week, we talked about how John the Baptist says, Man, you're in sin. You cannot steal your brother's wife. You cannot sleep with your brother's wife and marry your brother's wife. Pretty common sense. And Herod and his wife don't like that. His new wife, they don't like that. And so they end up throwing John the Baptist in prison. And while he's in prison, it's Herod's birthday. He throws this big feast for himself, this giant party. And Herod's stepdaughter does this sensual dance for Herod. And Herod, it says, is pleased, and this is one messed up family that's happening. If you think your family's messed up, look at Herod's. And so this this dance thing is happening. Herod's like, I'll give you whatever you want, whatever you ask. I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And she comes back and says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so Herod, you can see like almost like this regret happening, but he does it. He, he pleased man rather than God. He kills John the Baptist, John the Baptist, and he serves his head on the silver platter. And that's the end of that story. It just literally ends. And then it's so the disciples laid his body in a tomb. That's it. The end. Now we're reintroduced to two weeks ago. If you're like, what was that about? You can go back and listen if you want. But we're reintroduced to the first story. So remember, the disciples were just sent out. They're doing many signs and wonders and miracles and healings. And they're coming back this week in verse 30 excited and pumped and looking like saying, Jesus, look what we did. And here's what we see in this week. Here's what we're going to look at. Jesus also throws a feast. And if you read this as a whole, it's really interesting It's almost as if he's comparing Herod's feast to Jesus' feast. Herod has a feast for nobles, for royals. Jesus has a feast just with kind of the peasants. One's in this palace, one's in the wilderness. One's with all these highly respected people, and the other ones aren't named. And it's just an interesting kind of compare and contrast. Like he uses the taxpayers' dollars, Herod does, to throw this feast. Jesus has to create, in a sense, something out of nothing. And it's really this compare and contrast, and it's almost like, which feast do you want to be at? Do you want to be with royalty? Do you want to be with the nobles? Or do you want to be at Jesus' feast? And it's interesting. So this is actually the text. I've been really looking forward to this text. This is the text where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Now, if you grew up in church at all, this has always been like a cute Sunday school story where like Jesus throws a picnic. And it's not that, all right? Let me just kind of explain. Uh, This is more of like a radical revolution that's happening. Understand at this point in time, they're going, that King Herod who uses our money to throw feasts, we don't like him. This guy who feeds us, we love him. And at this point in time, they want Jesus to be king. They're ready to start a revolution against Herod, against Rome. They actually want to use Jesus for their own advantage, for their own gain. It's actually told, the is actually told in John chapter 6, and I'll just read this verse to you. In John 6 verse 15, Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Like, they're ready for a revolution. At this point in time, in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, they are ready for a revolution. They want to come and take Jesus by force and make him king. And here's what we see. Jesus, at this point in time, didn't want to be king. He wanted to be their shepherd. And, and I love this, because Jesus will come back as the king of kings. We will see Jesus as the king of kings, but we see him as a shepherd who takes care of his sheep. And John is really kind of pulling and drawing from all this Old Testament language of a shepherd and sheep. And we're going to look at this, I guess, text from that lens. So that the title simply today is The Good Shepherd, because that's how we're introduced to Jesus as the Good Shepherd. There's terminology, there's language being used, and you'll see it as we read it, that he's introducing Jesus not just as this king in contrast to Herod, but it, it, actually his heart is more of a heart of a shepherd. Not to rule tyrannically like Herod, but to come and to serve, to come and to guide, to come and to love, to come and to feed. So I, I'm, I just love this story. We're going to read it all the way through, pray, and look at it more in depth. So Mark chapter 6, verse 30, here's uh, what happens. The disciples came back, remember, verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus, and they told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And Jesus said to them, come aside by yourselves to, to a deserted place and rest for a while. It's like, almost like he didn't acknowledge it for there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. That that always bugs me. Verse 32. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves, but the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So... He began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and they said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for, for they have nothing to eat. But Jesus answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and, and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. We have five loaves and two fish. Verse 39, and then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in rings and hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples that set before them. And, and the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up the 12 baskets full of fragments and of fish Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this, um, this story that is more than a story. God, we thank you for what this reveals to us about you and your heart. And God, how you do care about our spiritual state and our physical state. And we just thank you, Jesus. I ask that you just speak to our hearts. I know that myself and many people can be almost cynical when it comes to miracles, God, but we just do see and recognize that this is not a violation of the laws, but this is a restoration. And so, God, we just thank you that you've come to restore and make all things new. We, come, we thank you, God, that you, you came just to put things back in order. And so we ask that you just speak to our hearts and, and just speak to us this morning in your name. Amen. It's been said, and maybe you'd agree, um, that the, I think it's, it's said different ways, but the best way to a man's heart is through what? His stomach. Now, I don't know if you agree with that, but I agree with that. Uh, the best way to my heart is through my stomach. I love food. I'm a foodie. I don't know if you love food. Um, I also, on the counter side of that, I get very hangry. I get hungry angry. I don't know if you guys get hangry. Any hangry people in this room? Like, it's bad. I have to repent of my hangriness a lot, because um, I love food. And I think the disciples love food. And, and food is more than just satisfying mere hunger. Can we just be honest? It's not like, I'm hungry. Let me just put anything in my mouth. Like, no, food is not that anymore. Food is an experience. And food is more than an experience. I did a wedding yesterday in, in Jacksonville. And the ceremony was beautiful. Like, outside, it was gorgeous. And it was beautiful. And it started at 6, it started at 6 p.m. And so when they're done, and it's like pictures, and it's like eight o'clock, like everybody was ready for food. It's kind of like, oh, we're so happy, but let's get to the food, like, right? Like, food is the centerpiece of every kind of great experience. Like the focus of any great time or any great experience is food. Like that really is like the focal point. We gather around food. Like my best memories growing up are around food. Like, when I think about, like, my mom's like, do you remember going to that person's house? I'm like, no. She's like, the meatball house. I'm like, meatball Meep, house? Yeah, just say meatballs. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you kind of know, like, food is now associated with locations and experiences and smells. Like, I have to smell something that takes me back. It's like when I'm three years old. I don't know why. Just the movie Ratatouille came to my mind. If you ever saw Ratatouille, where, like, he takes that little bite of Ratatouille, I think, uh, and he goes back to being a child. Anyway, sorry, that came to my mind. But it's true. Like, food just takes you back. And food kind of creates this fun experience, and you bond together, and first dates are usually around food. I mean, a lot happens over a meal. And I don't know if you've ever had a meal with someone, and you're eating and talking and laughing and having fun, and you've literally, during that meal, see, see their life being changed. I don't know if you've ever been a part of something like that. We used to have, you know, first priority in schools, and you're kind of eating food and sharing the gospel, and you're, in a sense, you're seeing people's lives changed over a meal. And this happens. This happens Still. It's fun to be, I had a great conversation last night with someone at the table just about life and death and heaven and hell over a meal. Like we're eating food, talking about death. It's so weird, but it's great. And there's just so many life-changing things that can happen over a meal. And Jesus changes lives over meals. I mean, this is what he does. Whether it's in small groups, like going to someone's home, or this group of 5,000 men, it's believed maybe ten to 20,000 people. 5,000 men, you think about the women, you think about the children, Ten to 20,000 people being fed, they're all filled. Lives are changed over meals. And here's what I love about this. This is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. The only one besides the resurrection. Do, you, do we get that? There's another story of Jesus feeding the 4000 in two other gospels. A lot of them have three stories, Matthew, Mark and Luke. This is the only this is the only miracle in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the feeding of the 5000. The only one that has all this this miracle here. That means Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were foodies. Like, they loved food. They cared about food. This was a pivotal point in Jesus' ministry. When you read John 6, the next day, they want to make him king, and Jesus speaks to them about heaven, and and I'm the bread of life. Like, this was a big point in Jesus' ministry here in Mark chapter 6. And a lot does happen over food. And a a lot of lives can be changed over a meal. And honestly, for me, I just hope, like we try to create space and environments even through groups or different opportunities and we try to always have food because we know that a lot can happen over food. And it sounds so weird, but it just does. And I, I, even as we're not, I know we're not eating right now, but I would love as we look at this story that our lives are changed over reading about this meal, about this feast. See, what Mark is doing is really interesting. He's pulling out of a lot of Old Testament language about the shepherd and sheep. He's drawing our minds back to kind of like an illustration between God being a shepherd and us being sheep. And I love this. Probably my favorite example or illustration of how we relate to God is the idea of God being a shepherd and we being like sheep. When I read this, I just, my mind just went to Psalm 23. right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Like I, my mind just kind of goes back to this. We'll just throw these verses up here so you can kind of see it firsthand. But this is what Mark's trying to do. They were like sheep not having a shepherd. He says, make, he make them to, lay, to sit in groups on the green grass. And then obviously Psalm 23 talks about the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Like he makes us lie down in green grass. Jesus is like, get in these groups, 50s, 100s, almost like sheep pens. He's like, get in groups, sit down. Remember, he just crossed over. He just crossed over the Sea of Galilee. He's having them sit in these groups. And here's what's interesting. The people of Israel were looking for a shepherd, not just a king. This was something that was promised to them. King David, as you guys know, and we know David was a shepherd before he became king, but David, he was kind of that king who had that shepherd heart. He was a king who ruled and reigned. He also had a shepherd heart in how he ruled and reigned. And the people look back and they love David. They honored you still to this day. You go to Israel and talk to people like they still love and honor King David and how he ruled and how he reigned. And the Messiah would come and rule and reign like King David, like a shepherd. Actually, Asaph wrote in Psalm 78 about King David as a shepherd. I love how he says this. He says, with upright heart, he shepherded them, the people, and he guided them with his skillful hand. Listen to those two things. With an upright heart, with his integrity, and with skill, he led the people. So you see like this, this character and this gifting going hand in hand and how that's so necessary. Whether it's here at our church or in your family's lives or just in life in general, how can we just lead people, love people, serve people with character and with skill? David was this king shepherd that they loved and adored and they're looking for the Messiah to come like King David. They're looking for a shepherd king. And actually, it was promised in the book of Ezekiel that God would come as a shepherd. And I believe what we're reading here in Mark 6 is fulfilling Ezekiel 34. Listen, Ezekiel 34, verse 15, God actually spoke a lot about bad shepherds and bad shepherding. I think you could see that Herod was kind of one of those. But in Ezekiel 34, verse 15, God said, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. I mean, is this not what's happening with Jesus here in Mark 6? Is Jesus not just fulfilling this passage in Ezekiel 34? I will come, and I will shepherd, and I will make them lie down. And we see this happening here before us. The shepherd king that they've been looking for is here in the person of Jesus. He looks at them, and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And so today, just we're going to look through this a little bit more, but as we kind of walk through this text a little bit, we see main characteristics of a shepherd. We see these characteristics of Jesus. Here's the three and how we're going to break it up. We see a shepherd who guides, a shepherd who guides, a shepherd who cares, and a shepherd who provides. All right, as we look at Jesus, the good shepherd, and his heart and how he led, we're going to see a shepherd who guides, a shepherd who cares, and a shepherd who provides. All right, let's look at a shepherd who guides in verse 30. Verse 30, again, just read this with me. It's, Interesting. Uh, Then the apostles, it says, verse 30, they gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And Jesus said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there are many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. All right, I want us to understand what's happening. The disciples have never really been sent out until Mark 6. We see them finally being sent out. They're being used by God. They're doing ministry. They're doing all these things. They come back to Jesus. Luke chapter 10 also records the same story. And they come back just filled with joy by how God used them. And they're sharing the things they've done. They're sharing the things they taught. And Jesus immediately kind of just goes, let's go rest. And I love this about our Lord. Let me just say this too. I see here with Jesus in verse 30 and 31, I see him care more about how they're doing than even what they did for him. And I see with our God that He cares more about how we're doing than what we're doing for Him. That He just kind of goes, "It's it's great, it's great, you serve Me into all these things, but let's go rest. You need some rest." And if I could just remind us, because I know that sometimes there can almost be like this obligation of like do do do, work work work, and Jesus is like, "Well, how are you? Let's let's go rest. Let's go take a little break for a little bit. Let's go be alone. Let's go be in a deserted place." You know, what I see Jesus doing is teaching young believers how to rest and how to be alone. And guys, if we live in a generation that just fears being alone, it is our generation. Like, we cannot be alone. We are so bad at being alone. Even when we're alone, we're like on a device that takes us to people because we love people. Like, we have to always be around people and things and like life. And like, it's funny, I was talking to someone one time, like, what'd you do last night? I was like, I was just reading. I got to read last night and kind of be alone. They're like, why? What's wrong? I'm like, nothing. I was like, I'm a human. I need to get refreshed. I don't know. Like, I need to read, right? Like we almost assume now if you're alone or you need to be quiet and you're, you're not answering your phone, call, why aren't you answering your phone? You need to answer your phone. I have immediate access to you 24-7. You need to answer your phone. It's like we live in such a weird time period and we have FOMO, right? We have fear of missing out. So I was like, well, what's happening? I know people, people are probably meeting. I need to be with people. People are meeting, meeting people. Like it's weird. We have like this weird desire to always be around something that's happening. And Jesus is like, hey, you just, you just did a lot of ministry. Let's rest. And I see a God who teaches us to rest. And I love that he says he makes them lie down in green pastures, the Psalm 23. So he makes them, like, you need to rest. It's crazy to think that a command is to rest. Some of you here and now really need to hear this. We have a shepherd who guides, and he's guiding some of you to rest. I'm a little tired today. I'm going to go rest after this, right? I'm looking forward to spending time with my son and rest. And some of you here honestly need to rest, but rest with Jesus. This guy named Daniel Aiken said it this way. I thought it was so good. Uh, he simply said, The greater the demands, the greater our need to find alone time with Jesus. So simple. The greater the demands of life, the greater the demands of ministry, just the greater our our alone time needs to be with Jesus. He guides them to rest. He's like, hey guys, let's go to a deserted place. Let's go rest. And please hear this, because I, I think, honestly, many of us, if not all of us, need to slow down and just rest for a while with Jesus. We act like, and I think there's just almost like this idea of, I will serve, and then I need to take like months off, but what we see Jesus doing is developing these rhythms and patterns of rest. It's not so much like, we all know, we go on two weeks vacation, we come back, and what do we want? A vacation, right? Like, we all know that. Like we see that. We go for like a long break and we come back, we're like, I need another break. That always happens. What Jesus is instilling in them is not these long periods of break of rest, of break, but these patterns and these rhythms of rest. And please hear this. Get a rhythm of rest. I'm trying to find little rhythms of rest. Like I have a three year old crazy madman son who i love and like i fight for alone time it's like i love when i can get like oh my gosh it's quiet i can hear me thinking this is weird oh my god what am i thinking about like it's weird and like some of you some people hate being alone but like we crave it and fight for it now and i'll say this find the rhythm of rest a guy named vance havner who's just a really good commentator uh he put it this way if you don't come he says if you don't come apart and rest you will come apart and that's just so true if you don't come apart and rest you will come apart I think we've seen probably some of the greatest downfalls in the Bible and in our life today because people don't have the rhythms of rest. Like we see that's just a little small thing. It's like not, and it's not like there's big sin. You just go, but they're not resting. And there needs to be rhythms and patterns of rest, of just deep rest. And so he takes them to rest. And again, I'll throw the verse up. It's Psalm 23. It says, he leads me beside still waters and he restores my soul. Remember, they got in a boat and they come out and the multitudes, you're gonna see, we're gonna see that in a second, the multitudes like attack them, but they got in a boat. They're beside water, and he restores your soul. <laughs> and I think Jesus is honestly fulfilling Psalm 23. He's like, let's go through the water, and let me restore your soul a little bit. And the crazy thing is they're interrupted with more ministry. Let's look at that. So we see a God, a shepherd, or a shepherd who guides, and we're going to see a shepherd who cares. A shepherd who cares. Because there's nothing worse than a shepherd who doesn't care. Verse 33, it says, But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities. And they arrived before them and came together to him. And and Jesus, when when he came out out of the boat, he he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and, and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat, but he answered and said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, we have five loaves and two fish. Let me just point this out. We have a shepherd who cares, a shepherd who cares. He comes off his, this boat with the disciples, the goals to rest, the goals vacation in a sense, and they're just thronged by these crowds. And it says he's moved with compassion on them. Now, if you would, please circle that word compassion because even in my study, I didn't know this, we see this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John always. Jesus was moved with compassion, moved with compassion, moved with compassion. This word compassion, is the, this is the only word in the Greek that's only used for Jesus. It's never used for anyone else. This is never used in, in Romans and in Acts and the Corinthians. It's never used in any other book other than the Gospels about Jesus. That Jesus was moved with compassion. And it's kind of like hard to translate, but there's like this deep feeling in the pit of his stomach where he feels what they feel, and, and, and he senses what they sense, and he just wants, he, he, there's something within him that wants to meet that need. He's just moved, not just like he cares, but it's like this deep feeling of, like, I got to do something about this. And can we just point this out, that our God cares? We serve a God who cares. We serve a God who's not like he sees us in need and is like, oh well, we serve a God who's not distracted who's not distant but he's near and he cares that's why in Mark chapter 3 when he sees the man who can't move his hand it's the Sabbath he's like I'm gonna heal this guy it's the Sabbath day I'm gonna heal him that's why when he sees a leper who hasn't been touched in years Jesus touches him that's why when he sees a demon possessed guy hiding in the graves and people want nothing to do with him because he's fighting people and beating people up but Jesus goes to him we serve a God who cares and we need to be reminded of that amen like our God cares because too many times I talk to people and it's like, does God even care? And it's like, yes. Please slow down enough to see that your God. Our God is, Jesus is constantly moved with compassion. It's only said of him. He's the only one that's ever said of that. He's moved with compassion this way. And it's so unique. And I love this, because what were they on their way to do? They were on their way to rest. Right? If you guys and myself include, if I'm on my way to vacation, if you're Think about this, imagine this right now. You're on your way to your vacation and you get to your vacation spot and your coworkers and your clients are there, right? How does that make you feel? You probably get so anxious like oh my gosh, like your skin would probably crawl, right? Like my coworkers, my clients, why are they here? Jesus sees them and he's not like anxious, he's not frustrated, he's not angry. Like oh, I just want to rest. He's moved with compassion. And he's open to being interrupted in ministry. And that, and let me say this, that's why Jesus is Jesus and we're not, right? <laughs> Jesus, only Jesus can be moved with compassion, like on vacation. The disciples was like, what are we doing here? Like, I thought we we're going to rest now. But Jesus moved with compassion. And why? Why was he moved with compassion? What does it say? What was the key thing? Why was he moved with compassion? Did you catch that? It, we said it earlier. Because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was so moved with compassion, because think about this. They're going where he, he's leading, think about a shepherd. A shepherd leads the sheep but also sheep follow the shepherd. He's leading the disciples. The crowd's like, he's there, follow him. And like, he's going around the boat and they're like running around the lake. Must have looked hilarious. Like it's like 5,000 men running like to go find him. Like so the, the, he's leading certain people. Other sheep are just following him and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And, and here's what that means. Guys, the Bible does constantly use this language that you and I are like sheep and God is our shepherd. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned their own way. That all of us are sheepish. And what it really is implying is that we are not self-sufficient. That we are, that we are endangered in a sense. That we need someone to look after us, to care for us, that we cannot take care of ourselves. It really puts us in a vulnerable spot, this idea. It's saying you are completely helpless and vulnerable. And it is so fun. I wish I had. I read some articles just about sheep because it is fun. But sheep are hilarious. Like they'll graze and graze and graze until they're like the edge of a cliff and keep grazing and then fall off the cliff. And then they'll like keep, other sheep will graze in the same spot and fall off the cliff. And like there, there's been times where like 20 plus sheep are just found dead in one spot because they graze until they, they just graze until they fall off and die. Sheep are helpless. That's the idea. Sheep need a shepherd. And Jesus sees them and he's moved with compassion. And what does he do? And I want us to see this. It says, so he began to taught them. And that is so interesting to me. He sees this group of people and he's like, let me, te- let me teach you. Let me talk to you. And here's what I see first and foremost. Jesus meets our spiritual needs. Jesus recognized at this point in time, the most necessary thing and the most needed thing for them was meet a spiritual need, and it was, they need to be taught and instructed and corrected and guided, so he teaches them, and he meets our spiritual needs. And please hear this, because you can actually read what he taught in John 6, and I love this. Like, you can read what he taught, you can look at this more, but what we see Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the bread of life, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus said that in Matthew 4.4. 4. Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus says, you know what you really need? You're like sheep without a sheep. You know what you really need? You need to be fed spiritually. That's what you and I need the most. That we think maybe we're physically hungry, but Jesus knows there's spiritual hunger that is that much greater that Jesus literally said the words, I am the bread of life, saying I'm the one who will satisfy you. Bread could never really satisfy you. Physical things could never really satisfy you. What Jesus is teaching us is no amount of success could satisfy you, no amount of power could satisfy you, no amount of sex could satisfy you, no amount of any drug or alcohol, nothing in this world could satisfy, no physical thing can satisfy you. I am the bread from heaven that Moses talked about. I'm the one that you've been looking for. I'm the one that'll fill you and meet your every need. This is what Jesus is teaching them. They needed something more than what they were looking for, and they still missed the point, and we still missed the point, point. and they turned away angry in John 6. They're angry by this teaching, Many people didn't like it. They don't want to hear it. And it's so interesting because people don't want to hear Nothing in this world will satisfy you other than the person of Jesus, and we don't want to hear it. We still go, no, no, let me try this bread. Let me try that bread. Let me try this thing, that thing. And Jesus said, saying, I am the bread of life. I will, fa- I will fulfill you and satisfy you like no one else. In John 6, Jesus said it this way. Uh, he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. He says, but here is that bread that a man may eat and not die. Don't work for food that will just mold away and die. Don't work for that food. I will give you something that will satisfy you long-term. Listen, Jesus meets our spiritual need. The greatest need in life, and please hear this, the greatest need in our life is the knowledge of God. The greatest need in our life is the knowledge, who is God? What did he say, What what does he do, what is he like? How did God reveal himself? Jesus says, Philip, you wanna see God the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What is, and our greatest need is simply the knowledge of God. It is the grace of go, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he meets that spiritual need. And if you, you've been in this place where maybe for years you've kind of tested the waters and like tried this out and tried this out and go, well, this isn't satisfying. I'll try more of it, and this is what we do. We want more excess. This little bit of power didn't satisfy me. Maybe I need more power. This little sexual romance thing didn't satisfy me. Maybe I need more sexual partners. And we try more and more. We think, why is there still a big void? Why is there still a big void? Because Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that will really fill you up. All this other bread will spoil. All this other bread will go to waste. But I will fill you. I will satisfy you. Jesus meets our spiritual needs. And I'm so thankful he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And the first thing he does is take care of the most important need. And the most important need is spiritual. Amen? The most important need is always spiritual. But then he meets their physical need. And what we see about Jesus is that he cares about the whole person. And sometimes in the church, we really have like this, this unbalanced thing where we, care, where we only care about social issues. We've got to feed people. It's like, yes. Or it's like spiritual things, and they need to hear the gospel. Yes, but we also need to care about the whole person. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it actually talks about... Uh, honoring your God with your body, soul, and spirit. Like everything, everything is God's. That Jesus wants to take care of the whole person. I'm so thankful we serve a God who cares about the whole person. Psalm 107 puts it this way, and I thought it was great. It summarizes it. It says, "He listen, he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Did you hear both? He satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. He wants to take care of both. And so the disciples, they see this crowd, the multitude. In verse 35, it says it this way. It says, they said this, and I quote. This is the disciples, and listen to them. They go, this is a deserted place, and, the, the, and already the hour is late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. I love this, by the way. This is a deserted place. I circled deserted because they're telling Jesus where they are. Jesus, in verse 31, says, let us go to a deserted place. I love that they need to remind Jesus of what he already told them. Like, they need to remind Jesus of where he brought them. Do we try to remind Jesus of where he brought you? Like, Jesus, this is hard. He's like, I know. I brought you there, (laughs) right? Like, we like to remind Jesus of certain, Jesus, this is deserted. He's like, oh my gosh, thank you guys. It's so helpful. I didn't know it was deserted. Like, no, he brought them there. He knows where they're at. And they're giving him advice. Send them away. Their advice, it's like, hey, let them either go away or, or, and they, or they're really sarcastic here. 200 denarii is not going to feed everyone. Two That was basically nine months of wages. It's so like nine months of wages aren't going to be able to satisfy. We need that much, Jesus. And they're like sarcastic and they're rude. And here's what I see. And here, here's what we see in this. They go, this is impossible, right? Is this not their attitude? This is impossible. And Jesus is like, exactly. And, and here's what I see in ministry. So often there's these times where you go, this is impossible. This is impossible. We cannot do this. And Jesus is like, finally you get it. So I think the sooner we understand that what we're trying to do is impossible, I think the sooner we can be used. The sooner we get to this place where we realize, like, I don't have the resources. I don't have the I We don't send them. We, uh, someone else, someone else, someone else. And Jesus is like, first of all, you, <laughs> I love that you find them something to eat. But when we have to get to this place, all of us, we realize our resources will be limited. We will be limited. There's still areas we need to grow in and mature in. And there will always be this, like, less. And that's finally when we realize our greatest need is not resources or the supplies, but it's Jesus who is the supplier. That is the greatest need. The greatest need is not the supplies from Jesus, but it's the supplier. And they're going to learn this. They're going to learn this in a sense. They're being rude and sarcastic to Jesus and they're going to realize what they needed all along was simply him. I, one author, uh, this book is called Ministry in the Image of God, and he said, he said this, this really well. He says, if you listen, if you rely on trainings, you accomplish what training can do. If you rely on skills and hard work, you obtain the results that skills and hard work can do. When you rely on committees, you get what committees can do, but when you rely on God, you get what God can do. See, this is what they're learning. They're going, oh my gosh, we, we can't rely on our, our smartness. <laughs> we can't rely on our, you know, creativity. We're going to have to rely on God in a whole new way. You say they felt like they weren't sufficient for the work in front of them. And this is so important for ministry. You know, when you talk to people who go, I don't feel like I'm sufficient for the work that Jesus called me to, you go, finally, you're ready. Let's go. It's people who are like, I can do this. I'm a great speaker. I'm great at this. I'm pretty good. You're, you're not ready. <laughs> It's when you realize your lack and realize that you are insufficient and that God is sufficient. That's what we see happening here. There's, even though they're being sarcastic and there's this like negative, rude tone to it, they're far, starting to see: yes, you can't do, but He can. And this is what they're learning. You know, Paul said it this way in Second Corinthians chapter two. Listen, Paul says we are the aroma of Christ. And that is like humbling. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? He's like, not me. Understand that all of us here are some sort of aroma. Either he's like, you smell like a dead skunk or you smell like a beautiful flower. You're either the fragrance of death or you're the fragrance of life. And he's like, who's sufficient? it's hard, it's, it's almost intimidating to think that we are a fragrance of Christ. That when, when people are around us, they're getting like a whiff of Christ. And either it's like a bad whiff or it's a good whiff. And it's like, who's sufficient? And actually, it's a few verses later. This is 2 Corinthians 2. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he answers this. He says, look it, not that we are sufficient. Later, he answers that question. That's why chapters are bad sometimes. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the, le- of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And let me even paint it this way too. Who's sufficient? It's really hard when you're t- we're talking to a Christian and we're saying, hey, kill sin in your life. Like the sin is gonna kill you or you kill your sin. Like the sin is slowly killing you. It's owning you. You're, you're a slave to the sin in your life. You, you don't have control over this, this that has control over you. And it's really hard to look someone in the eyes and say, stop sinning. And you're like, okay, how? I don't know, just stop it. <laughs> right? Like, it's really, it's hard. Like, when you talk to me, you're like, stop it. Like, just stop. And they're like, I can't. Like, it's really hard. But here's the point he's saying. He goes, no, no, but God is sufficient. The letter of the law kills, but the spirit gives life. The spirit can have someone stop sinning. The spirit can say, I'm going to rule you. I'm going to master you. You're not going to be a slave to this anymore. See, I, we can't do, I can't do it. Right? We can't. There, there's a sense of this where we're, we are helpless like the disciples. You go, well, what's the answer? The supplier. What's the answer? Jesus? The answer is us praying and saying, God, we have to look up to heaven and say, you do this. Only you can do this. I can't help this person get out of this, this addictive behavior, this addictive attitude. I can't look in the eyes anymore and say, stop sinning. The letter of the law kills, but the spirit gives life. And it's like, sometimes at this point now, I've had to come to this conclusion where I really just let go and I pray and say, God, let it be your spirit that gives him victory over the sin. Because I, I can't say, there's nothing I can say that can be like, oh, now I got it. I've unlocked this you know, secret thing to stop sinning. It has to be a work of the spirit. And we see this, the disciples, they go, we can't do this. Guys, ministry is so overwhelming. It is so overwhelming. I do feel like often, we're like, uh, I got, I got uh, five loaves and two fish. <laughs> like, I feel like that. They come, just like, go, go find something. Like, oh, we got five and two. Like, I just, that, he's like, okay. And I feel like it's so often there, there is that. And I wonder, what if they had more? What if they had l- I love how Jesus is using and involving them, though. Do we not see that Jesus, What do you have? Can we look at that verse again? It's, it's in uh, verse 37. He answered and said to them, you, you give them something to eat. You, you do it. It's almost like a, a funny joke to them. Because if I'm there and just like, you do it, I'm like, ha, huh. Right, like what do you say? Like, he's like, go find what you can and give them something to eat. And, and I, I see this. I see that God involves us in his work. God wants to involve the disciples in his work, what he's doing. And I don't always get this, but our God will involve us in his work. And it's something that we can't do. It is something where we have to look, we go back to him and say, well, this is all I got. And he goes, okay. But there, there's some sort of like mutual, just give me the most, give me everything you got, but I'll also do it. There's like, Jesus like, I got this under control, but you're still going to have to work. And, and if you guys remember in John 6, they're going asking around, and they find a little boy who has his lunch. It's a little boy's lunch. Literally, mom packed him five loaves and two fish. It's like a personal sized personal size meal for like a lad, for like a young boy. And that's what they have. And they go to Jesus like, hey, we got five and two. And we're going to see Jesus do something incredible, obviously. But I love that Jesus involves us in the process. And guys, like in our small little church, I love that our God involves us in the process. I love that we do feel overwhelmed a lot. I love that we kind of go, okay, let's just pray. This is hard. (laughs) Like, what do we do here? I don't know. We'll pray this time and next time. Like, and there's something about kind of going, we don't have, we don't have it. Like, we are going to Jesus with what we got. Like, hey, here's what we got. Can you multiply this? And I, and I love just the response, and the, and Jesus, we see Him involve the disciples in this process. And here's what we see next: not just a God who cares, but a God who provides, a God who does something. We see a, a shepherd who provides. Look at verse uh, 39. So He commanded them. Uh, he, he, so He commanded them to, to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when He had taken the five loaves and the two fish, He looked up to heaven. And blessed and broke the loaves and gave, the t- gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all, so they all ate and were filled. All of them. And they took up the twelve baskets full of fragments of the fish. Twelve baskets. Now those who had eaten the, uh, the loaves were about 5,000 men. So basically he's implying there's probably 10 to 20,000 people here. A lot of people here. And they just counted the men. And what we see here is a God who provides and i want you just to hear certain language when he gets the five bread and the two it says he looks up to heaven and this is the posture of prayer and when he's shown his disciples is this the sense of i'm looking up jesus is looking up to heaven and saying god only you can do this it's this posture of prayer and this is where we see god provide in a miraculous way and again for me guys it's funny when, when i read this story when non-believers like i don't know if you i was sitting up to someone in the airplane studying and i'm like man i wonder if they see this and what do they what do they think you know, like, what do they think when they see, like, Jesus feeds 5,000? Like, okay. It seems almost fairy tale esque but can I, can I just say this? Miracles are not a violation, again, of the law of God. They're not a violation of the law of physics. They're restoration of how God made things. God, made, God is restoring those things. God didn't intend for there to be death. God is restoring. He's making the things the way they're intended to be. And so, miracle, God is allowed to do that because he's not violated anything. He created it. He's, he's actually restoring it back to what it was. And so, he's, people were meant to be filled They're meant to be full they're meant to not be hung like this is something jesus is trying to come and do and restore make all things new and simply what we see here is our little is multiplied in the hands of god our little is multiplied in the hands of god the little of what they had is just multiplied in his hands and this just brings me so much comfort Because here's the scary thing for us, maybe individually and as a church. And think about this individually. It's scary to go, Jesus, I'm giving you everything. It's not much, but I'm giving you everything. And we can act like, well, well, it's not much. It's not that much of a sacrifice. No, it's probably harder. Literally, here's everything. I'm giving you everything. I'm just going to trust you to to do what you do. And it's intimidating. I've talked to Christians and believers. It's like, well, I'll start giving to God when I get more. It's like, that's not how it works. Don't assume you're just gonna be more generous as excess comes. If you're not generous now, you won't be generous later. And there's this idea that like, I think that all of us have to be stretched in this way of like, God, I'm just gonna give you what I got. Might not be a lot. lot. It's actually in those seasons when we have less that we really just grow in our faith. We're going, God, I'm trusting. Like, I am literally giving up what everything I got. I'm just trusting in a unique way. And our little is multiplied in his hands. And here's what I love. I think it's Warren Wiersbe who said it this way. He says, we are not manufacturers of God's blessing we're simply distributors of God's blessing. Like the disciples didn't manufacture and produce 5,000 or 10,000 or 20,000 pieces of bread and fish. Like they didn't manufacture it. They just distributed it. And so for us, we're not here to try to manufacture something. We just go to Jesus and say, Jesus, you do it and let's distribute it. Like It's overwhelming. Sometimes, again, I've mentioned this and maybe you felt this way, but you go to a crowds or you're at a mall and you look around and you go, there's so many people here who don't know Jesus and you, f- you feel overwhelmed. You're like, Are, will these people be you know, spending hell or eternity away from him and your heart's like broken for them and you feel like this is overwhelming and I'm not called to manufacture something, I'm just called to distribute something. And it's really like person by person, one person at a time. It's like, how do you build a house brick by brick? How do you share the gospel brick by brick? Like, just one at a time. And I, I see that. Again, I can't force this. I can't make this happen, but I'm just distributing what Jesus has done. I'm distributing that blessing. Uh, one person said it this way. I love, I think it's yeah, one where I warn where beginning. He said, Jesus looked at the situation not as a problem, but as an opportunity to trust the Father and glorify his name. He looked up. He looked up. And disciples would see that. And I, I, th- I always do think about the story, like, did he rip off a piece of bread and just, like, regenerate? Like, whoop, like, grow. I'm like, what the heck? Like, I don't know how that, like, worked. I don't, it's just been so cool. But this, again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the story. They're all, like, we have to record the feeding of the 5,000. Another time, I'll feed 4,000. Two of them mention that. But this one's pretty cool, 5,000. <laughs> and they all mention this. And here's what I want to just end with this thought. Because as the good shepherd, he does provide. As the good shepherd, he does see our needs. But, but please listen to what it does, because Mark is using language in a way to fast-forward our mind. For those who are reading this story, it has one big, whole, long story, the gospel of Mark. Hey, here's the story of Jesus, and they're telling, and they're gossiping the, the story of Jesus. Like, when they received this book, Mark wrote it, and they started making copies of this, and they're telling the story of Jesus, and they're seeing this, this common thing. It says, he blessed, and he broke it. He blessed, and he broke it. And we'll just throw the verse up here so you can see it this way. He looked up to heaven, blessed, and broke the loaves, and he gave them to his disciples. In Mark 14, when, right before Jesus was crucified and taking Passover, and it says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke, and gave. And he said, Take ye, this is my body. It's so interesting how he blessed the bread, he broke the bread, he gave it to his disciples, and he would do the same thing again. He would take bread, he would bless it, he would break it, and he would give it to his disciples. And Mark always has these little like. And it's the same words. It's the same. He's always these little. He's just like these little like. I don't want to say droppings, but these little like droppings, like pointing to the bigger story. He's like, look at that. I'm gonna bless the bread. I'm gonna break the bread. I'm gonna give it to my disciples. And this is pointing to the fact of the cross. How Jesus would bless the bread, break the bread, and he would also just give it. And, and and this is communion, This is Jesus. Jesus, like, this is my body, which is broken for you. I'm gonna bless this. I'm gonna break this. I'm gonna pass it out, and I'm gonna ask that people do this until I return. I'm gonna ask that people remember my body and told remember this: to remember who I am and what I've done, how I came to pay for the penalty of sins, how because I died on that cross, you can live. And Mark is using this language here and again later in his book to point us to this. And again, here's what I see. The good shepherd in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Yes, he guides, yes, he cares, yes, he provides, but ultimately the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Ultimately, the shepherd becomes the sheep. Ultimately, the shepherd would become the sheep that is slain. The shepherd takes the lowliest of low positions. Not just, think about a shepherd and his job and being with smelly, dirty sheep all day, but now he's like, I'm going to become one of them. I'm going to become one of them, and I'm going to live an innocent life, and I'm going to die so they can be forgiven. When John sees Jesus, the shepherd, he goes, behold the lamb. Behold the one who's going to die and take away the sins of the world. And see, Jesus is, in this story, he blesses bread, he breaks bread, and he passes it out, and he does the same thing, and we do the same thing today. Here we are, 2,000 years later, and we take communion. You know, that's the same thing we're doing. We pray, we bless it, we're giving thanks, we're passing it out. We're doing the same thing. And there's just something unique about the story, and I think that's why all of them record this. Because this this breaking of bread, this feeding of 5,000, it's like, you know what? Jesus is going to feed a lot more than 5,000. This bread would be passed on and on and on. And how, did, how many people have partaken of this bread, of the greater bread, of the bread that represents Christ, the one who laid down his life for us? Now I regret not having communion right now. Uh, but isn't that a wonderful story? I just love that. Jesus is like, sh- repeat, repeat, repeat over and over again. Bless it, break it, give it. Bless it, break it, give it. And this speaks of me and his body. Listen, Jesus will satisfy us like anything else. No amount of power, of wealth, of authority, of sex, of drug. No amount of any of those things will ever fill us. What we need is the bread of life. Jesus who taught him, let me give you something greater, and that's me. And this is what Jesus still offers us us today. Amen? Guys, I just want to pray, and I want to worship. I want to thank Jesus for being that bread. I want to thank Jesus for being the one who satisfies us. And uh, let's just pray now. Jesus, we thank you. We are amazed God, by how much you do with our little. God, I'm absolutely amazed. It really makes no sense to me. <laughs> the things that we put in your hands and what you've done makes no sense to me. God, you are, you are so good. You are, you are that, that good shepherd. And God, we shall not lack. And forgive me. God, forgive me so often for, for having fear or thinking I will lack. God, for all of us, remove that fear that we have a good shepherd. God, who gave his life, how much more will he give us the things that we need? So God, we ask that we could take comfort, that you are a compassionate God who sees our need, who meets our need. And Jesus, we ask that we would be just faithful, faithful to bring to you what we have, faithful to look to you and trust you to do more than what we ever could. And we just pray and ask these things, Jesus, in your wonderful name, amen.